Well, we're thankful Brother Rick Lawson has agreed to come our way tonight for Bandersville, Georgia. Now, his wife, Mary, couldn't come with him tonight. She has family in, but they're a wonderful couple. He's been with Bandersville now. He was telling me for eight years. I couldn't remember. Uh, but uh, this was uh, the topic that uh, he agreed to, I think it was a couple years ago, wasn't it, Rick? And then, of course, uh, the... The COVID thing knocked us off track, and so uh, he, this has been percolating with him now for a couple of years, but he uh, he's come our way, and, and uh, Rick is a graduate from the Memphis School of Preaching, and uh, we have that in common, and he went before I did, and uh, when did you graduate from there? 99. Man, you are old, brother. <laughs> 1999. Actually, we're the same age, and uh, but... Uh, he graduated uh, in 99. I didn't come along and graduate there from until 07. But uh, he's been doing a wonderful work since he graduated, and he has a wonderful family. And uh, we're thankful that uh, he has uh, come our way, and we've been looking forward to it. He did a wonderful job last time he was here. And his topic tonight is the Superior Covenant. Brother, come speak to us. I got to talk to Brother Owens about how he stays looking so young. I didn't know we were the same age. It's great to be here. I am so thankful for this opportunity to be back with you. This is my third or fourth trip. I can't remember. I've got bad memories about uh, bad memory about things like that. But it's so good to be here. Uh, the last time was at least a couple of years ago. But as I was telling somebody when I came in, there's been a lot of water under the bridge over the last couple of years. Uh, I was one of the unlucky ones at Adairsville that got the COVID. And uh, <clears throat> we had a few in the congregation. One sister in the congregation, uh, her husband got it the same day that I did, and he didn't make it. I got well enough just in time to walk across the road and preach his funeral at the funeral home. So uh, this has impacted a lot of families and probably... Every congregation has been impacted by this. And I am so grateful to come here to White Oak and see you continuing to prosper and uh, rebuild after this, uh, after this terrible disease. Uh, every congregation is having to do that. And so don't feel like that, uh, don't feel like you're out here alone and you're the only ones going through this. I think every congregation is having to rebuild, uh, after the last year and a half that we have had. It is so great to be here on your summer series, and I am thankful that you are studying the book of Hebrews. What a wonderful, uh, what a wonderful topic of study for a summer series, especially at a time like this. You may hear this from every speaker that comes, but the book of Hebrews was written to a group of Christians who, because of difficulties they were facing in their lives, were going back to their old way of life. Now specifically, he was writing to formerly Jewish Christians who were going back into Judaism, but many of the principles apply no matter what we're going back into. And if this congregation is like the one back home, there are people who have gone back into their old ways of life because of the difficulties that came along with COVID. And so I know as you study through this book of Hebrews and the great lessons that you find in this particular book, that this congregation will be benefited from it. Now that's true anytime you study the Bible. 
That's why God's Word said that His Word won't return unto Him void. When we do God's Word, then good is done. When we preach God's Word, good is done. But what a timely series of lessons from the book of Hebrews. Open your Bibles, if you will, to Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8. And in some ways, Hebrews chapter 8 is sort of a time when the writer, the inspired writer, shifts gears. Up until this point in the book of Hebrews, he has been showing people the superiority of Christ. It, By the way, isn't that a wonderful way to keep people faithful in difficult times? The Hebrews writer didn't blast his readers. There's a time or two where he speaks pretty frank to them, but he could have raked them over the coals for the ones that were going back and the ones that were tempted to go back. If it be that the book of Hebrews was written by the Apostle Paul, and I think from the evidence it probably was, I'm not dogmatic about that, but it looks to me like whoever wrote it was certainly an expert in the Old Testament, and if there was ever a man that was... That way it was the Apostle Paul. If it be that it was the Apostle Paul, there were times where he had to write congregations and threat them. Don't make me come there. I'll come with power. But he didn't say that here in the book of Hebrews. He encouraged them to be faithful by putting Jesus up on a pedestal. When people recognize Jesus for who he is, then it makes it easier for them to be faithful. And that's true for all of us, isn't it? And so in the book of Hebrews up to this point, he's shown to be superior to the prophets, superior to the angels, superior to Moses, having a superior priesthood over the Levitical priesthood. But here in chapter 8, the focus comes off of Jesus personally and changes over to the law that Jesus brought. The covenant, the new and better covenant. That's important, isn't it? If we don't know about the new and better covenant, we're not going to know what part of the Bible to study to find out what we live under. There are lots of people. You might think to yourself, well, preacher, you're, you must be crazy. Everybody knows they live under the, Old Te- the New Testament today, but that's not true. There are a lot of people out there in the religious world that are going back to the Old Testament to justify some aspect of their, uh, of their so-called Christian life today. Many of them are going back to the Old Testament to justify different parts of their worship. Well, that might be fine if you're under the Old Covenant. But once you understand that you're under a new and better covenant... And like this chapter teaches that the Old Testament has been taken out of the way that Old Covenant has been uh, has been made old or obsolete, then you'll realize that there's no reason to go back there to that Old Testament for learning how to live under the Christian law. Today we have a new and better covenant. So I want to break up today's lesson in three parts. Number one, I want to talk in general about covenants. So we can sort of fix in our mind what we're talking about here. And then I want to see how the new covenant was promised 
And then finally, as we have time at the end, I want to look at some of the promises that the new covenant is built on. Let's start out by talking a little bit about covenants. That's not really a word that we use all that much in today's society. But if you look up the word covenant in the dictionary, it might say something like this. A formalized agreement between two parties. One dictionary I looked up said, simply used one word, compact. An agreement between between two people. And we certainly do that today, don't we? We think about contracts. It's the same sort of thing. A formal agreement between two different parties. And so one kind of covenant is the kind that is made between two relatively equal parties. For instance, if you want to buy, let's say, a a piece of property around here somewhere, then you will go to that person who owns that property and you will have, apparently, the amount of money that is equal to the value of that property, at least the selling price. And so you stand then as equals and you start negotiating. Let's work out a purchase for this property. I'll buy it for such and such a price if you'll throw in the mineral rights or if you'll give me a right-of-way or whatever the negotiation that takes place there. That is a covenant that is made, a contract that is made between equals. You might do that if you're going for a job, per se. You're going to interview. uh, They really want you to work for them. And before they hire you, you have a right to negotiate with those with that employer. I'm not going to come unless I get so much vacation time or this much salary or whatever the, the perks of it are. After you take the job, they might have the position of power then. They, they might have you. But until then, you're negotiating as equals. If you think about it, that is never the kind of covenant that God makes with man. Because we're not equal with Him. Oh, there are so many people today that would love to think that they could negotiate with God. When God reveals His Word and gives His instructions to men on how to live, they say, wait a minute, God, I don't like all of it. I like about 10% of it. And so let's discuss this other 90%. There are a lot of people that would love to think that that's how you can negotiate God's covenant. That's not the kind of covenant that God has with man. The kind, of govern, the kind of covenant that God makes with man is sometimes called a unilateral suzerainty covenant. All that means is God is the one who has all the power when it comes to making the agreement. And our job as human beings when it comes to this covenant that God has given us, and it doesn't really matter what the time period was, We don't get to negotiate with God. Our only part of the covenant is to obey what God has commanded and then receive the blessings that come from it. That's the kind of covenant that God makes. God looks down at man and says, look, you're in a pickle. You're in sin and sin, you can't solve that problem. And so here's what you have to do. You have to do this, and when you do, then I'll bless you in this way. And and God's not going to twist your arm up behind your back and make you obey Him either. He's never done that. 
He created us as free moral agents. He wants us to continue as free moral agents. And He wants us to choose to obey Him. And so when God says, here's my covenant, here's what you need to do, and here's what I'll do for you if you keep my covenant. All of God's covenants are conditional in nature. If you do this, then I'll do this. And we choose to either obey or disobey. Now if we disobey, we can't hold God to His part of the covenant because we didn't do ours. Our job is to listen and to obey. Now, you know that the most famous two covenants that we read about in the Bible are the Mosaic Law and the Christian Dispensation. Those aren't the only two. I submit to you that during the patriarchal age, when God spoke to the heads of the families and told them what they need to do to be blessed and to be right in His sight, that those were covenants too between each of those families that God was talking to. And so God has has made a number of different covenants with men. But we know and we see here in the book of Hebrews that there was a new and better covenant that was promised during the time of the Old Testament that was fulfilled by Jesus and His death on the cross and His institution of His law and building and the building of His church. For instance, uh, here in in Hebrews chapter 7 and verse number 22, it says, By so much was, Je- was Jesus made a surety of a better testament. Testament's the same sort of idea as covenant. And the Bible says here that Jesus was a uh, surety. He was made a surety for that New Testament. That word surety, some translations say the guarantor. The guarantor. Do you have people call you on the phone sometimes to ask you about your car's extended warranty? One reason I don't trust those people is because I don't trust them to guarantee anything. But you know what? You can trust the guarantees that Jesus makes. He is the one who makes good on the promises of the New Testament. And when God says something, you can take it to the bank. Jesus can't tell a lie. He's always going to tell the truth. And so you can trust in Jesus then as the surety of a better, a new and better testament. Hebrews chapter 8 and verse number 6 uh, tells us something else about that new, about that new covenant. It says, but now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant which was established upon better promises. So not only is he the surety, the the guarantor of this new covenant, but it also says here he's the mediator of that new and better covenant. What does that mean? Well, that means he's the one who intercedes on our behalf. A mediator is somebody who stands between two parties that can't get together and helps them to negotiate the situation. And so we don't have the power to negotiate, 
But the Bible says here that Jesus is our mediator. And so he knows what it's like to be a human being. He also knows what it's like to be God. And none of us do. And so he is in the perfect position to be the mediator of a new and better covenant. Well, better than what? And better in what way? Well, that's what we're studying here in Hebrews chapter 8, isn't it? We're going to find out what the New Testament, the new covenant is better than, and God is going to tell us here how it is better. Let's read, uh, let's read uh, from verse number 1 in chapter 8, where the Bible says, Now of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. We have such an high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not man. For every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices, wherefore it is necessity, it is of necessity that this man have somewhat also to offer. For if he were on earth, he should not be a priest, seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law, who serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things. As Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle, for see, saith he, that ye make all things according to the pattern showed thee in the mount. Let's not skim over those verses without pointing out that God tells us here that that worship that they had in the Old Testament, including the tabernacle and the priesthood and the sacrifices and everything they did in their worship in the Old Testament was a shadow of something better that was coming. You know, you can learn a few things by looking at a shadow. If we were outside and at the right time of day, and you saw the shadow of a tree on the ground. You might could deduce a few things about the tree, its general overall shape, and maybe its you know, relative size compared to the bushes around it or whatever, but you couldn't learn very many details until you looked at the actual tree. God says that's the way it was in the Old Testament. Those things were just a shadow. And Jesus, who would come later, was the actual reality. That shadow was just giving people a small glimpse of what the reality would be when Jesus came. That's one of the reasons I'll submit to you that this covenant that we are under is better because we see more of the details. We see why God did what He did in the sending of Jesus. Because that was the only way that God's sense of justice could be satisfied. You see, in the garden, it was a sinless man who sinned. Adam was created without sin. And then he chose to sin. And so in order to pay that price, a sinless man had to die. The only problem is, there hadn't been one of those since Adam until Jesus came along. You see, that's how God uh, satisfied His sense of justice by sending Jesus to die for mankind. Let's continue here in verse number 6. We read once already, but now hath He obtained a more excellent ministry by how much also He is the mediator of a better covenant which was established upon better promises. One of the things that makes the 
the new covenant better is the promises that it's built upon. I'm thankful for that. There's a whole lot of reasons I'm thankful that I'm not under the Old Testament law. But one of the main reasons is because of the promises that we have as part of this New Testament, this new covenant that we're a part of in Christ Jesus. Let's talk about the promise of that new covenant. Verse 7 says, For if that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. You know, one of the reasons he's talking about this and writing about this to his immediate audience there is because they were leaving the sacrifice of the blood of Jesus. And if you can imagine this, they were going right back to the temple and offering animal blood as a sacrifice for their sins. I can't imagine leaving Jesus in His once and for all sacrifice for mankind and going back with the blood of a lamb or, or a ram or a, a, a bull and offering that in the temple. But that's what they were doing. And He tells them here, look, you need to realize that that first covenant, the one that you're so tempted to go back to, was found to be flawed. Now let me explain that, lest you get the wrong idea. When God gave the Old Testament law on Mount Sinai to Moses and sent the prophets and others to add all the things that the Israelites were supposed to do during that time period, God gave that law and it was perfect for that time and those people in that place. It wasn't faulty in that sense. But it never was designed by God to be permanent. That's why Paul described it in uh, in Galatians chapter 3 as a schoolmaster to bring us to Jesus. The Old Testament law was never designed to be universal in its scope. It was only designed for the Jewish people. There were a few Gentiles that were uh, sort of proselyted in around the edges, but it was never meant for everybody in the world. It was meant for the Jewish nation to keep them pure until Jesus could come. And so it was always limited in its scope. It was limited in its duration because it couldn't outlast Jesus. Jesus fulfilled it and took it out of the way. And having taken it out of the way, He had to give us a new and better law to live by. Because if we had no law, then there'd be no sin. Sin is a transgression of the law. And so when Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament, He had to do something. He gave us a new and better covenant. He says that first covenant was not found faultless. Uh, it, was, it was found faultless. Then should no place have been sought for the second. If the Old Testament was designed by God to be universal in scope and duration, then we wouldn't need the New Testament. But it wasn't. Verse 8, it says, For finding fault with them, he saith... Now, in this section, almost uh, for the rest of the chapter, at least through down through verse number 12, he quotes uh, a passage from the Old Testament, from the book of Jeremiah. And so, uh, Jeremiah chapter 31, verses uh, 31 through 34, this is almost a direct word-for-word quote from that passage. 
But he says here, for finding fault with them, he saith, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Well, let's pause right there before we get into the rest of that quote from the Old Testament to talk about what it means. And notice the very first few words of verse number 8. It says, For finding fault with them. So it wasn't just the law of Moses that was found by God to be flawed because of its limited duration and limited scope. It was also the fact that fault was found with the people who kept the law or tried to keep the law. If you go back and read the Old Testament, for instance, go back and read the book of Judges sometime, and you'll see that those people never did keep the law of Moses for very long. They would have short cycles where they would do well when God delivered them from their enemies. And then they would forget about God, usually when they were riding high on the hog. And God would send some nation in to oppress them and punish them for their ungodliness. And then they would start the cycle down. And they'd get to the bottom, rock bottom, and they'd call out to God again and say, God help us. And what would happen? God would send a Savior, send a judge, and deliver them from the people until they got wealthy and fat again, and then they'd forget about God all over and go through the cycle again, over and over and over. That was the problem. Half of the problem was the people who kept the old law. Those people that it was given to did not do a very good job keeping it. And so what does the Bible say about what God did with them? Well, it says He found fault with them. First of all, He found fault with them. Uh, When He found fault with them, He punished them. You know, He told them over and over again not to go after the gods of the nations around about them. Not to worship any graven images, not to practice idolatry. And what did they do at every opportunity they had just about? Exactly what God told them not to. And God punished them ultimately with 70 years of captivity. Why? Because they didn't keep His law. They didn't do what He said to do. Now was that God's fault? Absolutely not. That was their fault. God punished them because of it. But He didn't destroy them. He left them hope. He let them come back from captivity. And you know what? They never did have the same kind of problem with idolatry when they finally got done with that 70 years of captivity. I guess 70 years would teach anybody an important lesson. And so fault was found with them. You know, uh, God's promise... Uh, is a powerful thing. They didn't continue in His covenant. For that reason, He allowed them to be taken away by their enemies. But He left them hope. Because Jesus still had to come. He still had to have a people to bring Jesus through. And so He said, you're still going to be a nation. You're still going to have that law until the seed comes. And then God promises that new covenant. 
Verses 8, he continues there that quote from uh, Jeremiah chapter 31, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. The King James uses the word regarded. I regarded them not. You know, that word is only found four times. The, the Greek word is only found four times in the King James Version. And two of those times, the word is translated neglected. So think about when, when God regarded them not, He neglected them. Not in the negative sense, but I'm sure as a parent, sometimes you see your kids doing something they don't need to be doing, and you say, you need to stop that, you're going to get hurt. You need to stop that. After the third time, you say, all right, go ahead. And what do they do? They fall and bump their head, and they cry a little while, and then they know not to do it. You neglected to jump in and save them from the from that minor hurt that they suffer so that they can learn an, a more important lesson for later. Not the least of those lessons is, you better listen to mom and dad. <laughs> And God said to them, don't go into idolatry. And when they did, he neglected to save them when Nebuchadnezzar came down to get them. And so he let them go into captivity. Verse 10 says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people." And they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least to the greatest. For I will be merciful unto their righteousness, and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. In that he saith a new covenant, he made the first old. Now that which is decayed and waxeth old is ready to vanish away." I'm so thankful that God promised us a new and better covenant here. And the Bible says in verse number 13 that just making something new shows that that which came before is old. I think it's the New King James that uses the word obsolete here in this particular passage. This is why we don't have dietary laws. This is why we don't have a Levitical priesthood. This is why we, uh, this is why we don't burn incense or use instruments in, in the courtyard of the worship. Because all of that is old, obsolete. It's been taken out of the way. Colossians 2.14 says that it was taken out of the way being nailed to the cross of Christ. So many great promises that we have here in these passages about this new and better covenant. Number one, it was designed to be a spiritual covenant. You know, the Old Testament was so physical in nature, the law of Moses. Can you imagine just trying to close your eyes and think of what it would have been like to be alive 2500 years ago and be part of the law, uh, part of the nation of Israel and have to bring those sacrifices to the temple, to the priests, 
on a daily, weekly, monthly, and yearly basis to roll your sins forward for a year. There was no complete forgiveness in that Old Testament law. They just rolled those sins forward for the next year when the high priest would go into the most holy place again and offer the blood of a bull for his own sins and the sins of a of his people, and then he would remember not just the sins from that last year, but all the sins from there on back, all the way to the beginning. They just pushed those sins forward year by year, never receiving complete forgiveness for those things. Can you imagine what that must have smelled like walking up to that temple with all those animal sacrifices the smell of the blood of those animals running through the streets I tell you what I'm thankful I'm not under that old covenant I'm thankful I'm thankful I'm covered by the blood of Jesus I don't have to worry about bringing those animal sacrifices through some uh, uh, priesthood of man You know, in the Old Testament, they had some good priests. They had some bad ones too. They had some good high priests. They had some rotten ones too. And it was like our Supreme Court justices. Once you got in, you were in for life. Nobody could really get you out of there until you got ready to go or until you died. Wouldn't that be terrible to have some man scam you into thinking he was a good fellow and you make him the high priest and then he's locked in for the rest of his life? Turns out he... Turns out he's a bad one. That happened in the Old Testament a number of times. One of the great things about our high priesthood, and I know you'll study this, is Jesus never dies. He's our high priest now forever. Forever and ever. And we don't have to worry about Him being bad or needing to replace Him. That's part of that new covenant that we're a part of. And so we have a spiritual law. God said, I'll put my laws in their hearts. It's not written on tables of stone. It's put in our hearts. But we have to make sure that we do our part along those lines, right? It's not enough to have God's Word in our hands when we come to worship. Our hands alone. Not enough to keep it on the coffee table and let it collect dust or up on the bookshelf. It doesn't do any good to leave your Bible sitting here on the pew when you leave the building because you know it will be here the next Sunday when you come back. You need to put it in your heart. That means you have to study it. Study to show thyself approved. Show thyself approved unto God. A workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. The Bible says. And so we need to be students of the Word of God. Why? Because we have to put it into our hearts, into our minds, into our lives, if it's going to do us any good. So that law is a spiritual law. The Bible says that we're born again by the incorruptible seed of the Word of God. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. And so we have a more spiritual law that makes it better. Also, this law that we follow provides a closer relationship with God. That's what he says in verse number 10. He says, I'll put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. 
Doesn't that sound like wonderful intimacy there between us and God in that New Testament system? You see, in the Old Testament, the run-of-the-mill Jew, when he wanted to get close to God and offer up sacrifices and worship God, he had to go through a some man, a priest. He had to go to a place, the temple, and find a man to offer up his worship. We don't have to do that, do we? We can worship wherever we are, as long as we do it according to God's Word. And we don't need any human intermediary between us and God. We are a nation of priests. We're a holy priesthood to God. And so we can offer up our own worship. We can sing and pray and give and partake the Lord's Supper and study God's Word. We can do every bit of it ourselves. Now God wants us to do it with brethren. He wants us to assemble and to get together and encourage one another and lift one another up and worship with one another. But we don't have to go through any man to do that. God says, I'll be their God and they'll be my people. And so that new covenant helps us get closer to God in that way. Next, this covenant is only for people who know the Lord. Look at verse number 11. They shall not teach every man his neighbor. Well, isn't that a strange thing to say under the new covenant? Does that mean that Christians don't teach their neighbors? No, that's not what he's talking about. What he's talking about is everybody who is in this covenant relationship with God, this new and better covenant, the Christian dispensation, already knows about God. See, you can't be part of the church unless you know about God. And somebody says, well, wasn't that true in the Old Testament? It absolutely was not. Because in the Old Testament, you were born into that Jewish religion. If your parents were Jewish, you were born Jewish. If you were a boy, you were circumcised on the eighth day. And then when you got old enough to teach, they would teach you about that relationship that you were already in with God. A Jew that was not taught their religion didn't grow up to be faithful. They had to learn about God. That's not true with Christians. Now, we have to learn about God before we obey the gospel. But once we're in that covenant relationship, once we're a Christian, it's because we already know about God. You can't obey the gospel without knowing about God and about His plan. And so that makes this covenant better, doesn't it? Because we don't have people running around in the church, part of the church. When I say in the church, I'm not talking about the building. The church is the people. So we shouldn't have people running around as part of the church that don't know anything about Jesus or His way or His will, His word, His instruction for our lives. He says every one of you have to know about it already or you couldn't be a Christian. So you're not going to have to teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least to the greatest. Everybody in the church from the bottom to the top already knows Jesus. We already know God. We already know what He wants us to do. Because we had to do it in order to get into the church. In order to be added to the church. In order to get into Jesus Christ. And that makes that covenant better. Also, importantly, it provides, this new covenant provides full forgiveness for sins. Look at verse number 12. I will be merciful to their unrighteousness. 
And their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. You know what I found interesting about that passage? Is when I went back and compared it verse for verse with Jeremiah chapter 31, beginning in verse number 31. It's very similar, but the kicker is in Jeremiah chapter 31 and verse number 30. Where the Bible says... Every man will die for his sins. That's what Jeremiah says. That's what happened in the Old Testament. You committed sins. There were some sins you couldn't even come back from. You don't believe that? Ask that man that was picking up sticks on the Sabbath day. They didn't know what to do with him and they took him and kind of put him in prison and Moses prayed about it and God said, you got to stone him. We gave him, we gave you the law that said nobody do any work on the Sabbath day. Here was out here picking up firewood. He had to be stoned. You see, what we have under the New Testament is complete forgiveness of sins. And what a great blessing that is. Their unrighteousnesses, their sins, their iniquities, I will remember no more. Aren't you glad that God's a good forgetter? You see, the blood of Christ, once it's applied to our lives, it washes away those sins and God remembers them against us no more. A friend of mine that I study with on a regular basis, a new convert at Adairsville, I sat down with him this week in his home and he said, you know what has been worrying me? Am I as a Christian going to have to stand before God on the day of judgment? And I said, yeah, you're going to have to stand before Him on the day of judgment. The Bible says everybody is. He's just not going to remember your sins. We've been pardoned. We've been justified by the blood of Jesus because of that new and better covenant. Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, the Bible says, talking about uh, Jesus there, it says uh, to God, it says, "...who hath delivered us from the power of darkness, and hath translated us into the kingdom of His dear Son, in whom we have redemption through His blood, even the forgiveness of sins." That's what's so important about that new covenant. Complete forgiveness for sins. Sin is the only thing that separates between us and God. Isaiah 59 verses 1 and 2. Sin is what keeps us separated from God and out of heaven when we die. And the judgment is passed. And so what a blessing that Jesus died on the cross and His blood provides complete forgiveness of sins. Now the good news for those people under those old laws is that when Jesus died on the cross, His blood went backward too. Backward in time to wash away the sins of all those people who kept the laws that they were under, whether it was the patriarchy or the law of Moses. Nobody is going to go to heaven without the blood of Jesus applied to their lives. For us today as Christians, that means that we've got to be part of that new and better covenant. So the question I have to ask myself, and the question you have to ask yourself is, are you a member of that new and better covenant? Are you a partaker of it? Well, if you're a Christian, you are. If 
you've obeyed the gospel, you're part of that covenant. If you haven't obeyed the gospel, you need to. You see, there's no other option. The only way you can be saved is by being under this new and better covenant and having the blood of Jesus applied to your life. It was foretold by Jeremiah the prophet, fulfilled by Jesus in his death on the cross of Calvary. If you haven't obeyed the gospel, do it now. Hear, believe, repent, confess, and be buried in baptism for the remission of your sins. If you want to know more about the plan of salvation, come forward and let us study with you. And if you're here as a Christian, you realize maybe you haven't been doing what you ought to do as part uh, under that new and better covenant, then it's time for you to come back to through repentance and prayer. And we'll be happy to pray with you and for you. No better time than right now. Surrounded by those who want the best for you. And God is here in our midst. If we can help you, let us know right now as together we stand and as we sing.